Last week, I made you a promise, and I intend to keep it. And the promise was that for those of you who had uh, taken notes on the back of your sermon page, we talked through something called the Corinthian Grid. If you weren't here last week, you can go back and uh, check out that sermon on all the social media stuff, and, and you can watch that and figure out what we're talking about. But many of you took notes. It's a, it's a, it's a decision matrix uh, for believers, uh, those that have been set free in Christ on how to live. And so uh, I promise that uh, taking those notes and you've got that, but I would uh, make available to you an attractive copy of the grid, and it's available in two forms. One is it is available in this, uh, it's got the When God Came to Sin City graphic there, how free people think, the Corinthian grid. And it's got all six questions there with the scripture, the principle, and the application. First Baptist Coleman on the back, there's, you know, and uh, it goes right there on your fridge. You can uh, have that, you can put it in your Bible. And so that is available, uh, but I'm not giving those out till you leave. Although I didn't want people to grab it and go. Uh, you got to stay for the preaching today. Uh, and so on your way out, we have those available. Another idea, and you can do both and, you don't have to do either or, but you may want to text, a, uh, get, a, uh, get it on your phone, a digital copy of that. To do that, if you have a smartphone, you text the word GRID to 256-291-0511. I tried it this morning, and sure enough, an attractive, you can save it to your photos. It'll be there in your photo roll. So you're looking at your grandkids, grandkids, how to make decisions, Okay. Uh, and, uh, however, you, you, but you can have that. The reason I might suggest you do that too is sometimes that'll be easier to share with folks who don't live nearby than giving them this piece of paper would be. And so you can do both and. So at any point in the sermon, you just text the word GRID to 256-291-0511. If you're watching this online, that'll be available to you and you can get it that way uh, if you're not able to grab one of these. But these will be available on your way out. I hope it's a blessing to you. I hope it is a benefit. It's a tool, remember, for those who are believers. I do not recommend it at all as a gospel tract. I think it might be even uh, confusing. It is for those who are believers, who are seeking to uh, uh, follow Jesus Christ. How do those who have been set free, how do they think? Uh, How should we think about life? If you're not yet a believer, the Bible says you're not yet free, and you don't need the Corinthian grid. You need Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, to come and rescue you. So, I hope that is a benefit to you. Well, as for today, uh, I try to think about how to introduce this final topic that Paul addresses. You know, we've looked at all these themes that his beloved church at Corinth needed some help with. And when he comes to this last one, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you want to go ahead and turn there to 1 Corinthians 15, this is the final matter that Paul addresses Many of you know, as you're turning there, I'll just say, many of you know, I, uh, I like coffee. Maybe I should switch to decaf, I don't know. <laughs> One of my favorite coffee shops in, uh, back in uh, New York was on Parsons Boulevard, and at, at the surface it looks like any of your run-of-the-mill friendly, really organic-y, granola-type coffee shop. But what made this place unique is that it was run by and frequented by followers of a guru. His name was Sri Chimnoy. This is a group of people, incredibly friendly, and they make really great coffee. And they practice uh, they, the, the teachings of this guru. They, in fact, call themselves disciples of the Sri Chimnoy. They dress in a particular manner, and uh, they, they, they take on this lifestyle. He has actually an international following, 
And his headquarters was based right in our neighborhood, in Hillcrest of Jamaica, Queens, because that's where Chimnoy, uh, when he came to the United States, that's the neighborhood he lived in. His followers claim that he was a, a kind and wise man who transcended the boundaries of human strength. He was known for these feats of great human strength and human consciousness. Those who left his following tell a much darker tale, uh, including accusations of sexual misconduct and manipulation. But either way, whatever your opinion of this, uh, of this guru, of this spiritual leader, here's the thing. On October 11th, 2007, he died. Many of us who were watching closely what was happening, this is happening in our neighborhood. These are, are people that, obviously, as Christian ministers, we're trying to reach them uh, with the good news of Jesus. We're trying to, but certainly, we're curious, what's going to happen? Many of us thought, what happens to people who've devoted their whole life to this leader, and now he's dead? We thought, well, maybe that'll be that, or maybe folks will move away. I mean, folks have moved from far countries to live in this neighborhood, to be near this uh, Sri Chimnoy. But here's the incredible thing. They went right on. They're still there to this day. Groups devoted to his teaching. So it seems that living or dead, they would say, it's his principles that mattered. And I hope I'm being fair to them. I think they would say it's his principles that mattered. See, they can follow his memory. They can honor his life. And if they live in a way that they think he would have taught, then they're, they're doing well. And that got me thinking, is it possible, is it possible that some Christians uh, are like this when it comes to Jesus? I mean, they live good lives, they try to honor his memory, but, but living or dead, I guess, you know, it, it'd be the same, uh, you know. Ask the question another way. What difference does it make in your day-to-day life that Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus is alive? Is that just something we say, or do we, do we consider that a dead Nazarene Jew got up and walked out of a grave 2,000 years ago? Another way to ask the question, if Jesus were not alive, what about your life would change? What if there are no resurrection for Christians? Would we still go to church? Would we still sing about him? Would we still remember him? Would we try to live lives in his honor? Would you still love and try to serve and teach others about Jesus? I mean, think about that. If there's no resurrection for Christians, at the end of all things, if our bodies are not going to be raised from the dead, would you try to convince others to follow Jesus? If, if lights out when you die, it's eternal nothingness. Well, believe it or not, the church at Corinth, and by now you probably believe it. I'm like, what's up with these people, right? But believe it or not, the church at Corinth, there were people in that church. Out of all their problems, one of the things was they had people going around saying, look, the resurrection is like spiritual. Uh, they had taken on this Platonic Greek idea that the body is somehow evil and bad. That's, by the way, why Paul spent so much time in 1 Corinthians 6 talking about how your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and all that. Well, your, your body is like a prison to escape. This is what the Platonists thought. Your body is a prison to escape, and so your spirit is going to be liberated and maybe float off to a cloud to be with heaven or, or, or whatever, but there's a spiritual resurrection. And so there's no such thing as a general bodily resurrection. Or they might have said something like this. It's an optional belief. You can believe in the resurrection or not, but it doesn't really change anything. They would say, if the resurrection of Jesus happened or not, if our bodies are going to be resurrected, we should still live lives of love and service. And, and so it's really, whether or not there's a resurrection, it's no big deal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in the strongest language possible, it is a big deal. It's the biggest of deals. It influences everything else. Everything, 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 everything about Christianity hinges on Jesus being bodily raised from the dead. 
we believe, y'all, that a dead heart started beating again. That, this, that, that doesn't happen, okay? But it did. That those lungs filled with air after being dead and buried three days. That didn't happen, but it did. You believe a dead Nazarene Jew got up and walked out of a grave. I don't know why Christians are so worried about how they appear in the media for our views on sexual ethics or all these things. I'm like, believe me, that's not at all the weirdest thing we believe. I believe a dead Nazarene Jew got up and walked out of a grave by the power of God. I believe that happened. So, so you understand, like, Paul says, that's everything to us. And if that dead body didn't suddenly spring to life, well, look, look at what he says in verse 12. He, he, he unfolds the logic of that. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That, that, that one's a little weird. Apparently, apparently, they were saying that, well, Christ was raised from the dead, but the rest of us will have a spiritual resurrection. He's like, look, it's a package deal. Either resurrection can happen or it can't. And if it can't happen, then you can't say Christ was raised either resurrection is possible or it's not verse 14 and if christ has not been raised get this clear if if easter didn't happen then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain paul is saying the resurrection is the rock bottom the resurrection is the sine qua known of the christian faith sine qua known is latin for if you ain't got that you ain't got nothing it's rough latin pig latin i think Without which there is no Christian faith. All Christian preaching is useless if Jesus is in the grave. Why? Because remember, the gospel is not fundamentally, the gospel is not good advice. If ever the religion is good advice, here's how to live the good life. Here's how to get it right morally. Here's how to get it right spiritually. Fundamentally, you have to understand, Christianity is the, it's not good advice. It is good news. It is a royal announcement. Hear ye, hear ye, world. This happened. And we've got to tell everybody that we can. This happened. The the dead Nazarene Jew got up and walked out of the grave. It's good news. Christianity isn't a set of ideas. It isn't a path of spirituality. It isn't a rule of life. It isn't a political agenda. It's good news about an event which happened in the world. That's why if our leader, Jesus, is still in the grave, we should all go do other things because it's not a path of... We don't have anything other than the resurrection, that he is alive. So Paul's pretty fired up about this. So now it'd be a, uh, probably, let's pause and go back and look at the groundwork he lays over and over in the letter. What does he do? We see he, he, he says, all right, I'm going to take you back to what I first taught you. He, here he does it again. He takes the Corinthians back. He did this when it was about unity. He did this when it was about sexual ethics. He did this when it was about how they gathered and took the Lord's Supper. He's done this in, the, in how to deal with food sacrifice to idols. He takes them by the hand, leads them back to where it all started, Okay, let's go over this one more time. Look at verse 1. Look at where he lays the the groundwork for this. Let's go back. Verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers. See, remind, as in repeating, as in I'm not adding any new information. Let's just go over this one more time. Of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So you see, he's, he's repeating the facts. That's a good lesson, by the way. Sometimes we think we need new information and new knowledge when, in fact, if you just sat down for 15 minutes and thought about the implications of a dead man being raised to life, 
you would realize that is sufficiently rich to nourish our souls. But he says, I want to remind you of the gospel. What is this gospel? Well, here he lays it out. This is the royal announcement. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Messiah died for our sins in accordance to the Scriptures. Paul grew up as a Jewish boy learning the Old Testament Scriptures. Think of it. The Bible which Paul read and loved as a boy and a teenager and a young man, that whole Bible was like a story in search of an ending. Right? So every year, probably Paul at his mother's knee would hear the story read out of the Torah about the Passover lamb was slain and the blood of the lamb was connected to the deliverance of God's people from Egypt. But over and over, wouldn't the question come up, but what about God's people's deliverance from sin? What lamb can do that? And every year, the blood of the lamb on the day of atonement, they would read in Leviticus, and the the high priest would appear outside the temple, and it meant that God accepted the people's sacrifice, and their sins were forgiven for another year. But the question would come up, but what lamb can take away the sin forever? What high priest can intercede forever? And every year when the rabbis got to that passage in Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant, the one who would bear the punishment that the people deserve, our sin was laid on him, and by his stripes we're healed. And like a lamb, he was led to a slaughter. And then a few verses later, the lamb is alive again. Who? Who is this pointing to? Who is this lamb? And when Jesus burst forth from the tomb, the Old Testament cliffhanger story, right? The ending was at last revealed. Messiah is the one who died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Exactly like the whole Old Testament promised. Verse 4, that he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That business buried, he was truly dead. And on the third day, that dead body was raised to life. Just as the Old Testament predicts in all sorts of passages, not the least of which Isaiah 53, where the servant is killed and then suddenly alive to see the, the work of God. And then I love this. He's saying, I get it. This is difficult to believe. One of the mistakes we make uh, uh, in looking at history is that we think, well, back then they would believe anything. You know, they were a a very credulous people. Nowadays, we're very modern, we're scientific, you know, so we we sort through things. But back then, they were just just more gullible. So the reason you can explain the resurrection is they were more gullible. Uh, The word for what you're doing is this, chronological snobbery. It's chronological arrogance. They were more gullible than we are. Why? What's your basis for that? because they lived back then and we live now okay so you're you're being a chronological snob is what you're being the fact is they were they were just as incredulous then as we are now there were many people if you read the gospels for example the sadducees they would mock jesus and the pharisees on the grounds that dead people don't get up out of the grave it's not going to happen so they were just as incredulous then so what does paul do paul who knows look you're not going to believe this yeah, many of you are not going to believe this. So what does he do? He gives his footnotes. <clears throat> if you ever do a research paper or, or even a good journalist, what do they do? They know what's very important. Sources. Footnotes. Especially when a journalist reveals a bombshell announcement that nobody's going to believe. What is that journalist? Sometimes they'll spend, year, they'll spend a year before they release the story. Well, they'll spend a year doing what? Nailing down that source. So that when somebody says, that's crazy, that didn't happen, you can say, oh really? Here's my sources. 
You don't believe me, you go ask him. You don't, you don't believe that that happened. Look at this historical document. Look at this register. You give your footnotes. And so Paul's saying, look, you don't believe me. He appeared to Cephas. That's just the Greek word for Peter. He appeared to Peter, then to the 12. That's the name for the apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. I love this. My favorite line in the whole thing. Most of whom are still alive. What's he mean by that? Go ask them. I'm not trying to hide this. This is not a conspiracy. They're right there. You can ask them. You can pick up your papyrus and text them. (laughs) They didn't call back then. They text. People are like, text is a modern phenomenon. No, it's the ancient phenomenon. Calling's pretty fancy. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Look, if if you were, uh, say you get called for jury duty and you find yourself on a robbery case. And this case, the prosecutor, you're having to decide, did he do it, did he not do it? The prosecutor has a witness who steps up, and that, that witness says, yeah, I was at the gas station, I was hanging out, I was minding my own business, and I saw that guy. I was, I was waiting to, to pay, uh, and uh, I was in line, and sure enough, when he got to the cashier, he pulled out a gun, he threatened him, he robbed the store, and he left. I've got, you know, I, got, I, I saw it all. Well, that's an open and shut case. But what if, what if you thought to yourself, but but how could his story be corroborated? I mean, what if he knew the guy and he had it out for him? What if, what if he made it up? Well, imagine a second independent witness came forward and said, man, I was outside getting a bag of ice, and I, sure enough, I saw the same thing. I mean, at some point, you've moved way beyond reasonable doubt. What if a third witness comes? You see where I'm going with this, right? I won't do all 500. But at some point... If it was a hoax, if it was a hallucination, you don't get 500 independent witnesses to see the same thing. And Paul says, go ask him. Go ask him. This is historical evidence for the resurrection. At last, he adds this, and this is where it gets personal. Verse 8. He says, guys, and if you don't believe these witnesses, think about who's telling you this. I'm Paul. Remember me? Saul. No one was more skeptical than me of all this resurrection business. In fact, I was so outraged that when these liars were, I thought they were liars, were going around saying, Jesus is alive, I tried to shut them up, I tried to argue with them, I tried to imprison them, none of that worked, and I eventually realized these liars could only be dealt with in the most severe way, they have to be killed. I didn't want to, but I love God's honor so much, I was on my way to Damascus to kill them in the name of God, because I'm the one who absolutely didn't believe that Jesus was alive. And then the craziest thing happened. On the way to Damascus, I mean, you could see the exit ramp. I was close. (laughs) And right there, Jesus decided to make one more fully visible appearance. And he writes, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. This untimely born is beautiful. I, I, I used to read that and be like, oh, I see. He was born too late. Jesus appeared to the apostles, and then as one untimely born, later he appeared to me. That's not what it means. Untimely born, and your translation may have a different way of putting that, but it actually means uh, a premature, a preemie, born before the due date. So Paul writes, last of all, as a preemie, way before my due date, he appeared to me. What's he saying? He's saying, check this out. The due date is when Christ returns, he's going to appear to everybody. There'll be no more doubt left. See, everybody's going to know he's alive, right? That's the coming due date. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, sure enough, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here's the thing. He let me see that way before my due date. I get to see what everybody's going to see one day I got to see on the road to Damascus. 
Incredible. And we shall behold him. I just got to do it early. And he says, and if I got to do it early, it's, it is not because I was so good. It is not because I deserved it. Look at what he says, verse 9. I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God. I'm here to tell you, if you get in this kingdom, it is by grace. It's all by grace. Look at verse 10. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul never got over the fact that when the resurrected Lord came to him and saved him, while he was breathing out murderous threats against Christ, while he was tracking down and hunting the people of Christ, Christ was tracking down and hunting him. And he never forgot that. It never astonished Paul that he was a Christian. I wonder if the word even was used a lot in his testimony. I wonder if it's used a lot in yours. What do I mean by that? There need, even if you don't say it every time, in the back of your mind, there needs to be something that goes, he saved me, comma, even me. There needs to be this sense that he saved even me. Well, let's get back now to verse 14. I'm just making the point that Paul says it is a big deal. If you've been, it, it, for Christ to have been raised, it is absolutely a big deal. You can't say, well, it's optional belief. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. So if Messiah Jesus is not alive right now, you need to know, uh, if, if Messiah Jesus is not alive, church, your faith is resting in the decomposing corpse of an itinerant carpenter turned rabbi. That's all your faith is resting in. Verse 15, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. So in other words, he's saying, okay, follow the logic. We'd be blasphemers because we're lying about God. God's honor would be called into question here. Verse 16, if the dead